Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Did my over-introduction right there. Um, hey, uh, a couple things before we get to this conversation uh, with Dr. Stephen Prothrow, which was a good one. I think you're going to really like this guy if you don't know him already. But uh, first, let me tell you about our sponsor for this month, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, May 3rd through 6th in beautiful Malibu, California. The Pepperdine Bible Lectures, uh, we're gathering together for talking about the center of our faith, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The theme is Cruciform, Living in Light of the Jesus Story. If you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about Pepperdine a few times. Uh, We've done a handful of interviews at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, which is all a way of me saying I really enjoy this event, and this year is going to be outstanding. They've got N.T. Wright. He's going to be there. Ruby Bridges, uh, who was immortalized in the famous Norman Rockwall well painting the problem we all live with greg boyd's going to be there david kinneman from the barna group greg boyle along with other people you know from the podcast richard beck's going to be there Stormont's going to be there uh, i'm going to be talking a little bit so there's a lot of great speakers along with myself who are going to be there and it's in malibu so you need to come to it it's a great event and highly recommend it. So, uh, Pepperdine Bible Lectures, that's our sponsor for this month. Now, second, there's been a lot of feedback about the two conversations on uh, violence, pacifism, and a Christian response. And I get messages, emails, all this, and I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Yes, we're going to talk about it more on the wrap-up, and um, it was a, a lot of... <laughs> we'll just talk about the wrap-up. That's what I'm trying to say. Wrap-up violence conversation it's going to happen me and storm are going to answer every question about a christian and violence once and for all you will never have any other questions about that after the wrap-up's done all right that's hyperbole by the way all right here we go Stephen prothro all right friends welcome back to the show today we have joining us from uh, boston i believe new york times best-selling author and professor at boston university dr stephen prothro how are you sir great great Good. nice to be with you are you are you in boston today i'm actually on cape cod about an hour and a half away oh outstanding well what are you doing yeah. in cape cod today i live on cape cod oh well that's a uh, that's not a bad place to live no not at all how long uh, where are you from originally uh, pretty much Cape Cod. I was actually born in Cooperstown, New York, near the Baseball Hall of Fame, but most of my life I've lived on Cape Cod. Okay, if you're born in New York, but you teach in Boston, there's an important question that people probably need to know. Who's your baseball team affiliation? Well, it's the Red Sox. Oh. And the Yankees The Yankees are just horrible. So, wow. of course, I have to root for the Red Sox. We're going to yeah. have to edit that out. So that's <laughs> terrible. I... I've got a buddy who um, he uh, finished up his orthopedic residency at uh, at, at Harvard, and so he was uh, one of the jobs that he was had on the table was to work with uh, a group of orthopedic surgeons that work with the Red Sox. And I told him, I was like, "Dude, I did your I did your wedding, and I'm going to cancel its validation. So don't take that job." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty bitter around here. And you know, I as a professor of religious studies, you know, I, I talk to my students about 
you know, Red Sox and Yankees when we're mm-hmm. talking about bitter rivalries between various religious groups. It's not all that different from, from that, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Your last book, you tried to get all religions to get along with each other. This book, you're getting conservatives and liberals to get along. I feel like the next book should be, how can you be a Red Sox and a Yankees fan at the same time? That's a much more difficult proposition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's good. So um, did you actually ever solve the world crisis of different religions? Are they all getting along now after your last book? Well, you know, My God is Not One book was really about how the religions are different from one another mm-hmm. and trying to uh, find sort of a firmer basis for religions uh, – to get along with one another other than this sort of pretend pluralism idea, like they're different paths up the same mountain. So the idea really was, wasn't quite as much focused on them all getting along, but I think that was, that was part of it that the, if, if you have that as your goal, it's better to start with difference and then say, well, okay, these traditions are different. just like different political systems are different or different uh, French culture and American culture are different, but we can mm. get along even across those kinds of boundaries like we do in other in other spaces. That, yeah. That's the, the broad idea. Yeah. I, I, I like the metaphor, and I think you use this in the book, that we're not all going up the same mountain, but each is going up a different mountain. And I, I think that's I think that's somewhat helpful. Is that your was that your metaphor? Or did I just steal that from someone else? Uh, that was me, yeah. That was okay. Me. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Now you you told uh, you told Stephen Colbert that uh, that the Muslims are currently winning because they're getting more market share. Have, has Christianity done anything to kind of get back in the race since you said that a couple of years ago? Not really. I mean, these mm. are really long-term trends. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, how many Christians there are in the world, it's actually gone down as a percentage, as a market share over the last century from from about a third to about 31, 30%. Uh, and then Muslims has really doubled from 20 from 11 to like 22, 23%. And that's still happening. I mean, it's tricky because a lot of that really has to do with birth rates um, that, you know, people in North America and Europe where there's a lot of Christians, um, they're just not having a lot of babies. Whereas in the Muslim world, um, there's a lot higher rates of rates of reproduction. So that's, Mm that's a fairly big piece of it. That's, that's really not changing at this point. Okay. So my full-time job is as a pastor of a church in Texas, in Austin, Texas. Um, do you think in terms of my career viability, would it be better for me to get members of my church to have more kids or for me to convert to being a Muslim? What do you think would be better long-term for me? I think if you're a pastor in Texas, I think you're going to be just fine. Okay, good. That makes me feel a lot better. I wouldn't worry about it. There's plenty of Christians in Texas, and good. and Christianity is not going away in Texas for for a long time. Okay, that's yeah. good. I guess I'm not going to quit my job today then. So thank you, <laughs> thank you for that great encouragement. Okay, let's talk about your new book, Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars. So you're a religion professor. What makes you decide I'm going to write about politics? That's a really good question. And, you know, it's funny because it never occurred to me until I finished the book and people started asking me that. Um, really? At, at, yeah. Um, I've really always written about religion and politics. I have never really considered them to be that different. Hmm. Um, when I was an undergrad, I majored in American studies and I had two areas of focus. Those areas were religion and politics. I've always been interested in the political ramifications of religion and the religious ramifications of politics. I think, um, I think, you know, I did this book called American Jesus that, that was traced different American views of Jesus. 
and that was thoroughly a book that was about religion, but also about politics. I think what's happening in this book is that, is that because the focus is, it's more, I mean, the culture wars are religious, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the feature of the culture wars is the culture wars is when we start to have political arguments that are morally and religiously inflected. So I think that's sort of clear that the religious religion piece is there, but I think in this book, there's just a little bit more of a tilt toward the political side. Um, and that said, I still think it's a religion and politics book like most of, most of my other projects. Yeah, I could see that, and especially the, the last section. I, as you're talking about the current culture wars, uh, you can't separate the religious from the political component in that. And uh, we'll definitely get into that in a little bit. But I want to talk about just let's lay the groundwork for this. One of your arguments is that conservatives need anxiety to rally the troops. And that causes them to need liberals, and even if liberals didn't exist, they still serve as a prop for conservatives. Uh, Some conservatives are going to hear that and go, no, I'm just trying to do the right thing. Why do they actually need liberals? Why would you say a conservative needs a liberal to keep their their rallying the troop? um, Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I started this book, I thought of culture wars as these sort of battles between the left and the right Mm -hmm. over – cultural, moral, and religious questions, right? Things like abortion, homosexuality, mm-hmm. family values questions, as for most of my lifetime, these things were, things, things were called. But as I went back and looked at the culture wars from really the beginning of the United States, which is what the book does, instead of seeing culture wars as just a contemporary thing, it sees them as a recurring mm-hmm. phenomenon in American history. Um, as I looked back and saw them, it just seemed to be these patterns that conservatives were really starting the culture wars and conservatives were really uh, propagating them. They were, they were waging them more and the liberals would sort of come in, but they were, were sort of bit players. They weren't really deciding what issues were going to be fought about. Um, they really weren't um, starting them. And so I just, in my head, I started seeing this as a sort of conservative drama with conservative directors and, and stars, but um, where the big parts were really were really played by um, played by the liberals, and I think that um, the, in terms of the anxiety, I, you know, I think that part of what happens is that we, I mean, th- this particular moment is pretty clear that there's a, a very deep fear and anxiety going on in certain subcultures in America about what's happening in the country, right? What's happening economically? Mm-hmm. What's happening racially? What's happening religiously? And people like Donald Trump are really tapping into that anxiety. So is Ted Cruz from your state. So is, you know, Rubio and the leading um, Republican figures. And I think that throughout American history, that's been a strategy of the culture wars of just sort of tapping into whatever anxiety is present and then naming the source of that anxiety and then sort of getting up a culture war against it. And in that, in that drama, liberals really just don't have that much to play except for to have a kind of response or rejoinder when the conservatives start to um, start to attack a particular a particular group or a hmm. particular problem. Now, in the current uh, debate over gun control laws, it it seems for for some conservatives that it's like the liberals are the ones who are starting the war. They're they're attacking um, long standing traditions and habits that gun owners have, and it seems like for them that the liberals are the ones attacking them. What's your take on, on that subject? Well, that's one piece that to me is so fascinating is that both sides, both sides, weirdly, both sides want to be losing. 
right? Mm. If you talk to liberals, they will say they're losing the culture wars and they kind of want to be losing because then they have a sense of being besieged, right? Okay. But at the same time, conservatives want to be losing because they want to have that sense of being besieged, right? There's this horrible problem, right? We need to make America great again because America is horrible now because it's under, it's under siege, right? Mm -hmm. By all these cultural, you know, problems. But, uh, but, um, but similarly, in terms of who started it, the who started it thing goes a similar way, right? So the liberals want to think that the conservatives are starting it, and the conservatives want to say the liberals are, the liberals are starting it. Like, hey, you liberals did the 60s. Like, we're just fighting against the 60s. Like, the oh, 60s okay. weren't our, our idea, right? Or, you know, you liberals got the Supreme Court to pass Roe v. Wade. We're just fighting against Roe v. Wade and the abortion question. Like, you, you started it. So... Well, th 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 this is kind of where the religion piece comes in, is that what we're talking here about is definitely about politics and policies, but we're also talking about narratives and stories that people live by. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's something really palpable about this narrative that, you know, um, my group is under siege and is being attacked by the government or the party or the bad liberals on the other side or whatever it might be. And then you kind of create this fortress mentality that draws people into the story and into the, and, um, and, and into the project. And that's part of the fuel of the, of the culture wars as I, as I see it. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I, I've got a friend who's uh, spent some time with churches in the West coast and he says you, you would think in the West coast that churches would be more progressive because, you know, California is a more progressive state, but the actual experience is that many of those churches are these bastions of conservatism yeah. because this is the one place where they can run from uh, everything around them. And it seems that churches, especially in, in where I'm from in Texas, are, are typically bastions of conservatism. And it seems that the churches that are most conservative have the ability to grow the largest and have the biggest infrastructure, whereas the ones that are more liberal don't seem to have that ability. Why do you think that, well, first of all, do you think that's a fair assessment? And two, why yeah. do you think that is? So that, I think that's a whole different question in a way, aside from the culture wars thing. But um, so first of all, you, you're in Texas and I'm in Massachusetts, right? So we both have weird angles on this question, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because mm -hmm. Texas is way more conservative and way more Christian than the rest of the country. And Massachusetts is way more liberal and way yeah. less Christian than the rest of the country, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you go to an average church in Massachusetts, it's going to be filled with a bunch of liberals, right, mm -hmm. for the most part. And if you go to average church in Texas, it's going to be filled with a bunch of conservatives. But so is the street in, in those places, right? So is an average neighborhood in, in most of those places. So um, I think that's, that's one tricky part. I do think that the uh, conservative churches are growing faster, although there seems to be some really interesting... Um, movement away from that within the last couple of years. I mean, for the last generation, um, it's been the mainline liberal Protestant churches that have been declining, and the evangelical uh, megachurches and uh, even fundamentalist churches have been have been growing. Um, I think there's been some hit to the strength of the churches lately uh, with the perception that that. Christianity is in bed with the Republicans. And I think that that, um, that perception, which has grown since basically the late 1970s and the era of Jerry Falwell and the religious right, mm -hmm. um, has hurt the Christian brand in a certain way because yeah. Christianity has started to be associated with uh, conservatism and with the Republican Party. So if you're, if you're a moderate or a liberal and you want to be an evangelical, you might say, I don't know if I really want to be an evangelical. This is a 
this is a religion that is just a bunch of people who are voting for people I don't want to vote for. So, um, so that kind of um, marriage of the Republican Party with evangelicalism that has helped to fuel the contemporary culture wars, mm-hmm. I think that's one contributor to the rise of people who are calling themselves uh, spiritual but not religious or un- the religiously unaffiliated. Hmm. And I think it's a source of some of the some of the uh, moderation of the growth in the evangelical side as well. I've never heard that say before. So you think some of the, the spiritual but not religious group, which as we all know, it's, it's a very popular group these days. It's because they don't want to have the political affiliations that many of the churches that they might know have. Yeah. When I was a kid and, and when I was a kid, in, I mean, I was born in 1960 mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And if you said you were Christian, that didn't have any, any political resonance as far as being right or left, mm-hmm. right? You could be, you could be um, a socialist, you could be a liberal, you could be a moderate, you could be a conservative, mm-hmm. you could be all those things. But, but with the rise of the religious right in the 70s and the emergence of the family values culture wars that I talk about in, in the last chapter of my book, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the connection, the, the mental association between Christianity and political conservatism has become increasingly strong, right? Because mm-hmm. those are the people you see on TV talking about Christianity. They're, they're voting for Republicans. You see Franklin Graham on TV, right? Oh, he's the, he's the Billy Graham's son. Like, he's the pastor. What is he? Oh, he's the right-wing, you know, um, political figure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't that, I mean, Billy Graham, when I was growing up, right, Billy Graham would pray with all these different presidents. He, he, he was very careful not to, um, not to seem to be affiliated with one party or another. Why was he doing that? Because he didn't want Republicans only to become into his crusades, right? Yeah. He, wanted li- he wanted liberals and conservatives to be saved, right? Political mm-hmm. liberals and political conservatives. So as the, as the Christian brand gets increasingly associated with the Republican brand, and those things are hard to disentangle, if you're a liberal, why would you want to call yourself a Christian? Yep. You know, you, people say, oh, what are you? And you, you might say, well... I'm not really affiliated. But then if you, if then you then ask them a follow-up question, like, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? They may say yes. Hmm. Yeah. But they don't want to call themselves a Christian, but because to call themselves a Christian is to be someone who hates Mexicans, right? Or someone who hates Muslims or someone, you know what I mean? Someone yeah. who has a polit- or someone who wants to, uh, you know, eliminate, you know, me- Medicare or, you know, hates Obamacare or something like that, right? Yeah. That- so that, that's been a source of strength for the Republican, I mean, you know, my view is, is that evangelicals have to some extent been used by, you know, the, the, the uh, Republican Party because they keep serving at the base for the Republican Party, but their party really isn't delivering what evangelicals have hoped that they would deliver. You know, what has the GOP done for evangelicals on abortion? What has it done for them on, on school prayer? You know, what has it done for them on these issues, the, these culture wars issues that they've gone out to the polls for? It's done hardly anything. And I think that that's part of the reason why there's now in this election, this revolt, not only against liberals, but against the Republican Party. That's what we're looking at with the, the rise of people like, you know, Ted Cruz and, uh, and uh, Trump and Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina. Yeah, that's interesting. And the, the thing about Graham not wanting to prevent people coming to his revivals makes a whole lot of sense. There's a famous quote by Michael Jordan when he was asked why he wasn't more political with his, uh, any of his speech, and he said, because Republicans buy shoes too. And, he, and <laughs> yeah. as a pastor, I go, I, I want Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives to be part of the church that I pastor, and so I don't want to go to either side. But 
if we trace the history back, which you do some of this back to the 60s, as to why Christians started doing this, it's, it's quite embarrassing as a Christian to hear the argument you make as to why Christians got into the political arena because it's not a very good reason. You actually tie it to racism and the segregation issue with private schools not wanting to yeah. lose their tax-exempt status. I've yeah. never heard that, nor do I uh, ever want to pretend like that's true, but I'm not doubting your scholarship. I'm just trying to look at my religion with rose-colored glasses. Well, there is a debate. I mean, there's a debate about how the contemporary... So, so in, you know, in my book, I, I go back to, you know, Thomas, a culture war around Thomas Jefferson's mm-hmm. faith and to culture wars about anti, against Catholics and against Mormons and culture war around, around prohibition. So, the, so those are my first four. And then only in the fifth one do I get to this, what we call the contemporary um, the contem- culture wars, because part of the Part of the hope of my book was to make sense of the contemporary situation. As a historian, I tend to do that by going back. But the history of the start of the, of the uh, contemporary culture wars, as I call them, um, really does begin, in my view, with, with these, uh, you know, the Brown v. Board of Education in, in 1954, which desegregates uh, public schools. One of the things that happens in the South is that a lot of, a lot of towns, they just close down their public school. They're, they're all white you know, public school, and then they open a Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then they just call it a private school instead of a public school, and then all the same white kids go to it. Yeah. And so uh, what happened is the IRS uh, looked into this, and they finally said, you know, we're not going to give tax exemptions to these schools because they're essentially a runaround. You know, the point of, the point of our tax exemptions for charities is we think these things, these things are doing good for the society, but these schools are actively undermining the desegregation ruling of the, of the, um, of the Supreme Court. So that really mobilized uh, people like Jerry Falwell and um, other uh, people we will come to call the uh, religious right because they were fighting for these um, schools which Jerry Falwell had started his own segregation academy that was mm-hmm. an all-white private school in Lynchburg, Lynchburg Virginia. So, um, but then what was, what was really smart about them in sort of getting this culture war going was saying that the fight wasn't for racism, it wasn't for segregation, the fight was for the right to have Christian schools. So they were like, these weren't segregation academies, these were Christian academies, these were Christian schools. And that's what really got going, this idea of the government, the, um, it sort of married this traditional conservative critique of the overweening federal government who's reaching into our business mm-hmm. with uh, the Christian right project of saying the federal government is trying to tell us how to run our schools. The federal government is telling us we can't have Christian schools. The federal government is pushing secular humanism down our throats. And that was the sort of real genius of the genesis there where you could marry the, um, the state's rights, small federal government, traditional political Republicans with the conservative uh, cultural conservatives like Jared Falwell and, and the religious right, and that's how, the, how that particular culture war yeah. gets going. But but then, as I also pointed out, that you're not going to get a national movement um, there in the 19 uh, in the in the 1970s going on a pure like r- racist platform. So that you have a shift very quickly to the family questions and to the, uh, the religious freedom questions, and those are what really carry forward the the contemporary culture wars. Yeah, but you you have quotes. I think it might have been from Dobson, uh, Ed Dobson, who whose son's going to be in the podcast in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, and yeah. he said, 
we we say this was about abortion, but I was at those backroom meetings, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't about abortion, right. which is right. yeah. yeah. There was no protest. There was. It, it's really interesting, and I didn't know this until I started researching the book. But there's very little protest against Roe v. Wade in 1973 by the religious right. Very little. Really. And in fact, the Southern Baptist Convention um, comes out in favor. It comes out with a with a pro-choice uh, platform. And um, it's really only until like 1980 that evangelicals finally say no to, uh, they come up with their contemporary view about abortion because it had been, it had been longstandingly in the Christian tradition. Christians were not opposed to abortion. So there was this understanding that it's kind of confusing in like Catholic theology, um, a lot of reflection on this, like when does life begin, you know, and, and, and in an era before ultrasounds and things like that, you know, the really the, the issue really was birth and maybe quickening, uh, but it really wasn't conception. I mean, there just wasn't that idea wasn't around, and so um, so it really was. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people like Dobson and Wayrick and some of these other leaders in the early um, you know alliance with Jerry Falwell with the formation of the moral of the moral majority. Um, they all say this that it really wasn't the it wasn't the abortion question. It wasn't the the um, family values questions. It was. It was the race academies um, issue that really got things going. And then the, the issue that traveled better, that could get you out of the South, right? You're not going to get a bunch of people in, you know, Chicago or in, you know, Boston or in L.A. to be all worried about segregation academies, right, um, defending them. But you were going to be able to get people that were worried about abortion in those areas. And that's when it really went. And by the way, there was also a, a Protestant critique of Catholics that was going on, like the abortion issue um, abortion was opposed by conservative Catholics and Protestants sort of thought it's like, eh, we don't really want to join with the Catholics on this, on this issue. Like what, why should we be doing that? They're Catholics. You know, we're evangelicals. We believe in the Bible. They don't, you know, yeah. we should have a different view. Yeah. You have the quote that, um, you're asking about moral, the moral majority and you ask, were they defending the Southern way of life or Christian America? And that's quite indicting. Like when we put the name Christian on something, uh, is it really just how people in the South usually live? And this is where I think the um, there's a quote that you have from Richard Sizik. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he's yeah. the, the National yeah, Association Sizzik, yeah. of Evangelicals. And his uh-huh. line was, he lamented the unholy alliance he helped cement between conservative Christians and the GOP. And he says, evangelicals have given everything and gotten nothing in return. Is that what you're talking about before when you said yes. prayer in schools or abortion? None yeah. of those things have changed since the evangelicals have, like you said, sided so much with the GOP. Yeah, that's right. And, and, that's, and that's part of why, why people in the evangelical base of the Republican Party now are angry at the Republican Party. Right? And part of why they're attracted. I mean, here's one of the great conundrums of contemporary American politics. Why are evangelicals interested in Donald Trump? <laughs> like, like, really? Seriously? Why? I mean, he's obviously not an evangelical. I don't know how many times he's been married, but, you know, Ronald Reagan was our first divorce president. It's not like divorce. I mean, I guess divorce is now a non-issue, but it used to be an issue for evangelicals because if you have read the Gospel of Mark, you've read the Gospel of Mark, right? Uh, yes, I've once or twice. Yeah. I mean, what does Jesus say about divorce in the Gospel of Mark? No. He says no. Yeah. And, and so, so, I mean... Why are evangelicals attracted to Donald Trump? I mean, I think one reason, one exp- certainly isn't any good theological reason they are. Mm-hmm. But, but um, one reason is, is that they have invested so much in the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has repeatedly 
not delivered, including President George W. Bush, who was, was himself an evangelical. He wasn't able to deliver on the issues that they cared about. Mm-hmm. And so, so this, you know, this movement, there's been a shift where the problem is the federal government to the problem is the Republican Party. And I think that's what we're living with right now in some way is a fallout of the lack of delivery on the culture wars questions to the evangelical base by the Republican Party. And, and the chickens are sort of starting to come home to roost on that. Hmm. So with your take on conservatives, they want to keep a certain way of lifestyle. They need the um, they need the anxiety that comes from you know those people out there. And to help maintain this image of being martyrs, it, is that what you think eventually will cause – will people ever be aware and say, why are we always playing the role of martyrs? Can we ever move past that? Or do you think people will just be fine with yeah. that for all time? Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, one thing as I was, I was, I was researching the contemporary culture war, there was this really interesting flipping back and forth between the moral majority idea – and the persecuted minority idea. And they would sort of seem to coexist in the same people, and they're obviously contradictory, right? Yeah. I mean, the more majority idea is that, and this was also like Nixon's idea of the silent majority, was that ordinary Americans are actually more like evangelicals, right? They more, they have, they're not moral relativists. They're opposed to abortion, mm-hmm. right? They want to see Bill Clinton impeached because he's a horrible human being, right? Because he's amoral. Um, and then over time, it sort of becomes revealed that actually that is not the majority position on any of these culture wars questions. I mean, that's why the book's called Why Liberals Win, right? Yeah. On these culture wars questions, usually the liberals win. So there's, there's kind of gradually dawns on the moral majority that they're actually not in the majority, that they're a minority. Mm-hmm. And that, but then that shifts into a different story they have in their mind that is also in some ways equally empowering, right? Which is that we are the persecuted Christian minority. Now, as you know, that has a very long history. It goes back to Jesus, right? It goes back yeah. to my namesake, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Mm-hmm. So, so um, there's a very long, long place you can stand there to say, look, I am on the righteous side, even though I am losing. And, and that, this is a theme of the book, this idea of the lost cause. That, that the, to, there's a sort of a puzzle here that Conservatives start the culture wars, but liberals win them. And conservatives invest more energy in them, and yet liberals win them. Why is that? And my answer is because the conservatives always pick, almost always pick lost causes to, to start. And the reason they pick lost causes, like, for example, gay marriage, or like, for example, anti-Catholicism, or, or like, for example, um, uh, you know, anti-Mormonism, is that you already have enough, the society has already moved far enough away from the conservative position for people to, to be starting to get anxious about Catholicism, for example, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to have an anti-Catholic culture war if you have, you know, four Catholics in the United States, right? And somebody starts fulminating about how, oh, these Catholics are overrunning the country. You know, the Pope is going to be president one of these days, and we're going to have, like, secret Catholics running the country and blah, blah, blah. Like that sort of conspiracy theory and anxiety and, you know, paranoia isn't going to get people excited, but wait a minute, once the Catholic population is 25% of, of uh, you know, Cincinnati or 10% of Philadelphia, then it sort of starts to be palpable, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so that's the way this, this works. You know, you start, you don't, you don't start opposing abortion until after the Supreme Court has already told you you, you lost, right? So yeah. that, that, there's an excellent example of a, of, of a really lost cause, right? Or, 
even now with uh, the gay marriage question, you know, the Supreme Court, what most people see as a conservative, you know, Supreme Court, or at least evenly split Supreme Court, um, rules, you know, for gay marriage, and you have the first GOP uh, debate, and every every candidate gets up and is opposed to is opposed to gay marriage, uh, even when that's already a lost cause. Why are they doing that? Um, politics is about getting votes. You know, most Americans are now in favor of gay marriage. Why why would you want to do that if you're running for president? Well, because you want to tap into this this kind of culture wars um, mystique that has to do with martyrdom and has to do with um, trying to recover uh, the country that has uh, gone in a gone in a in a bad direction. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if this is the quote that gave you your title, but it sure sounds very similar. It's the one by Wayreich where he says, "I no longer believe that there is a moral majority. I do not believe that a majority of Americans actually share our values. This is why, even when we win in politics, our victories fail to translate into the kind of policies we believe are important." So, yeah, is that the one that kind of it sounds a lot like your title. Yeah, I mean that was part of it. I mean that yeah. th- that quote I brought into the book because it sort of illustrated that yeah. that idea and that conundrum and that um, that moment that evangelicals, a lot of evangelicals, get to uh, when they just see like I mean another moment was the uh, you know the inability to uh, impeach Bill Clinton you know and to get rid of Bill Clinton because a lot of evangelicals thought that was going to happen because they thought, well, the country's moral and he's obviously immoral and we're going to get rid of him. Yeah. So what do you, yeah, no, I mean, but what do you, what do you say to the person who has a conservative attitude, say about abortion? It's an issue that, uh, it's been around for decades. People talk about a whole lot. We haven't seen any change on it. What do you think uh, a person whose attitude is maybe more conservative about that should have towards what should happen in the future? Well, I think part of it has to do with the way democracies work mm-hmm. and republics, right? So, you know, um, you don't get your way all the time uh, in when there's voting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a family, you don't, you know, in a family, you don't get your way all the time, right? In a, yeah. in a small town, you don't get your way all the time. In a church, as you know, you don't get your way all the time, right? And mm-hmm. you certainly don't get your way all the time in a in a country. So I think part of what's gone missing in our country, and this is the fault of the culture wars, is the sort of attitude of, um, of generosity and respect across these lines of difference, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the problem isn't that we have people in America who are in favor of pro-choice on abortion and people who are pro-life on abortion. The problem is we've forgotten how to, how to um, deal with one another across lines of disagreement. And uh, throughout American history, we've had very deep, deep disagreements about a lot of different things. But we've had this, uh, this um, cohesiveness that had to do with, well, we're all Americans, and well, we have voting, and we, well, I lost in the presidential election, and you won. So now, you know, your side gets to, um, gets to, uh, gets to have more power over the next over the next four years. So, you know, what I would say to people about abortion is that um, I think that both sides have um, had a lot of mistakes on how to talk about the issue. I think that on the liberal side, um, I I understand how it sounds in a way really trivial to be talking about uh, to use, use the language of choice, which is something we use for things about like buying a car or choosing the kind of hamburger you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. What's your choice? Do you want to have a McDonald's, you know, Big Mac, or do you want to have a Whopper? Um, it sa- sort of sounds like a consumer issue. 
And um, there's obviously something much greater at stake in the abortion um, question when you're talking about life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, <laughs> to be fair to uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton, you know, they tried over their um, careers to, uh, and they're, they're from the South, and they understand, I think they maybe understand this issue a little better. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton used this language of wanting to make abortion, uh, you know, rare, you know, rare, safe, and legal was sort of his way to talk about it, um, which was, I think, an effort at finding a little bit of, of middle ground. Bill Clinton, you know, early, I'm sorry, uh, Obama early on gave a speech at uh, Notre Dame where he was trying to find some middle ground on abortion. You know, how can we uh, reduce the numbers of abortions in the United States? Um, so I, I think, you know, the abortion question is interesting because it's actually one that hasn't been resolved as quickly or as readily as other culture wars questions. And I think in some ways that's because it's just not as easily resolvable, you know, Um, in a way it's a harder question than the gay marriage question um, because you can, you know, you can lose on the gay marriage question and have a sense that a gay marriage isn't really a marriage or gay marriage is an abomination or gay marriage is even a sin, but you don't have a sense that someone's dying in the process of that, you know, whereas in the abortion question you do. So it's a lot more vexed. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, uh, so if someone reads your book, they think, you know, if I'm going to choose, I definitely want to be a liberal because they always win. Uh, well, maybe not because maybe you want to be on the righteous side, the right among the righteous losers. Yeah. Okay. I can right? hear that. I mean, I mean, after all, okay. You go back to the very beginning of Christianity. You know, when I teach about Christianity in my death and immortality class at Boston University. You know, in the Jewish uh, world at the time of Jesus what happened to righteous uh, men? You know, they lived long, um, they were relatively healthy, and they died of natural causes. You know, that happens yeah. to Moses, that happens to Abraham, that happens to Isaac. They live over 100 years, and then they're buried with their kin. <clears throat> um, what happened to bad people is they died young, they died violently, right? They died like mm-hmm. Jesus, right? And so um, there was already this, you know, confusion in the Christian, the early, you know, Christian population, which was Jew, com- comprised, as you know, of Jews, yep. Jewish followers of Jesus, um, of like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like, good people don't die young, good people aren't killed by the government, you know? Um, and so you have this, this reworking of, of the narrative there of the, 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 the person who's unjustly unjustly, you know, the, the loser, right? Je- Jesus as the, the loser in that battle who was, uh, was righteous. And that made its way into the martyr uh, tradition that's so powerful in early, um, early Catholicism. And I think that that's still an, a narrative that we understand. It goes along with the underdog narrative in America. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to root for the underdog. So, um, yeah, if you want to be on the winning side of the culture wars, it's a very good bet. You know, if you want to go on a website where you can put who's going to win on gay marriage, you know, I would tell you to put your money on, on the liberal cause every time. But um, that is, people don't necessarily always just want to be among the winners. Sometimes they want to be the people who are right. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're, yeah. and if they're losing, there's a sense that we are doing the right thing because we're being the persecuted. Yeah. Righteous. Oh, that, yeah. that makes perfect yeah. sense. That makes perfect sense. And you know, I, I mean, one thing I do try to say in the book, because I, I, I think I'm, I'm a little worried with the title that, that the book's going to be seen as a kind of a, um, I mean, it's funny. It, I mean, it can be read as either 
coming to the defense of liberals or conservatives because conservatives argue all the time that, that the liberals are winning the culture wars. That's a conservative argument. Yeah. So I'm sort of siding with the conservatives with my title, but at the same time I'm against them because they're losing. <clears throat> but excuse me, but part of what I'm really interested in saying in the book is that the culture wars for all the way they're so divisive and so to me so depressing that we have, you know, people in the country who are denouncing one another as traitors and as, you know, foreign agents and as, you know, un-American and things like that. Um, there is a way that the culture wars function to settle disputes, right? And that, and that once we have the anti-Catholic, ugly anti-Catholic culture war and people die and, and bad things happen, um, we finally decide that, yeah, you can be Catholic and you can be an American. You, know, you can be Catholic and become president like John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these issues are typically settled in the process of the culture wars. And then the value that used to have been a value of inclusion or a value of, of uh, liberalism become an American value, right? It's no longer liberal to think your Catholic neighbor is a good American, right? That's just an American value. And the same about uh, being a Mormon or, or the same about allowing people in your town to have a beer on occasion, as we decided with the prohibition debate, you know, mm-hmm. and I think pretty soon within maybe a generation, it'll be the same with gays and, uh, gays and lesbians. And maybe in another 50 years, it'll be the same, um, the same with Muslims. So, so even though you can say liberals are winning on these things, um, this is also a process that allows for debate and conflict. And then eventually for some kind of resolution and some kind of, uh, some kind of agreement. So that's the sort of hopeful side of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I see. That. Okay, so when the the book first came in, I I have a handful of or a lot of authors from Harper One who is uh, who this book was published through, and so they they sent me the books that that uh, they're putting out, and so I saw this one, and my first thought was, okay, this is like a liberal manifesto. Uh, the title might have oh, made me think that how to like a how to book. Yeah, I thought it was just like, hey, this is why everyone should be a liberal. And what I what I found to be really redemptive, and, and not that there's something wrong with that that book being written, but one of the things I really liked about the book is someone like myself who kind of leans towards the Anabaptist tradition of we don't yeah. need to marry ourselves with the political party. What you see in this book, especially in that section you're talking about with the current culture wars, um, is you see what happens when you mix those two things together, and it works out. All right for the religious or the uh, political party, but it kind of hurts the religious party. And it's like the old yeah. saying about mis- mixing um, ice cream and horse yeah. manure. It's fine yeah. for the manure, doesn't work so good for the ice cream. And <laughs> y- you can quote me on that yeah. in your next book if you want. But you yeah. see, like that, as uh, Sizik called it, the unholy alliance. Like it does not work it work yeah. out too well when we do when we as the church do that. So I, I and you know, and, and there's a kind of naivete on the on the Christian side about it. What do you mean by that? that? Like. Well, you know, like, let's, let's get involved with the political party, and then they'll do stuff for us that we want. And, you know, the Anabaptist tradition is saying, really? You think that's going to work for you? No. Like, do you really think, in other words, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great debate about, you know, to what extent is the work of God being done in the world through political parties or through governments or through kings or through presidents, you know? No. Um, and to what extent is that being done through the churches or through individual Christians or whatever? And... And I think there's a naivete about about politics that, um, you know, are politicians really trying to make the world more Christian or are they just manipulating Christians to make the world a place where they have more political power? It seems to me that the latter is much more likely. And, and, and I say that not only as an observer of politics and history, but also, 
even you know inside a Christian lens, you know, if you believe in sin, like do do you think that you know if you believe in sin, isn't it more likely that these politicians are going to be manipulating you than the fact that they're going to be like good-hearted and like really looking out for your interests? Yeah, no, that's true. So I I was at uh, at a church and there was a gentleman who was heavily involved in the political process, and when uh, when Romney won the you know, the support, the nomination of the GOP. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was not for him before that, and he was working with a different candidate supporting him. And then when he got it, he said, you know, I'm going to support him too. And, you know, um, I know I said we need to have a Christian in the office, but, um, you know, he's a Mormon, so that's basically the same thing, which is funny, not because of the statement itself, but because I knew where he stood theologically. And there's no way six months ago he would have said that. But because his allegiance was to a political party, he was willing to make theological convictions uh, kind of go by the wayside because he was, well, you saw where his allegiance yeah. was. And, and that's where I'd say, Republican first, evangelical second. Mm-hmm. And is that, you know, is that where you really want to be? I mean, I remember I, I went and gave a talk uh, a few years ago in, um, in Utah at a state university that was 90% Mormon. And this was in the context of the debate over the uh, Ground Zero mosque, the Ground mm-hmm. Zero mosque. Yep. You know whether whether that mosque would be built near near Ground Zero. And um, there were some prominent um, Mormons who came out against the Muslims. And I and I said, you know, you guys, uh, you know, you guys, you ninety percent of my audience <laughs> are, are Mormons in the state, right? Um, don't you remember when this was you? You know, don't you remember like? you know, what happened to you as a religious, as a religious minority, you know, this shows to me that you are, you are more Republican than you are Mormon, that you've lost your Mormon um, identity and your Mormon values. You know, what's going on with you? And it was really interesting because I had a really great conversations with Mormons after that, you know, where there was sort of challenge of like, oh yeah, am I a Mormon first or am I a Republican first? And I think that's always the seduction of power, right? And that, that's the Anabaptist observation, right? I mean, that's, you know, back in the Reformation when the Anabaptists begin, you know, they're looking at people like Calvin and like Luther, who are in, in a way revolutionaries and in a way totally unrevolutionary because they're just going to do the same pursuit of political power, getting in bed with the princes, you know, like the Catholics were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Anabaptists are saying, no, the Christian the Christian uh, project goes along outside of the realms of, of political power. That's yeah. where it really, that's where it really proceeds. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really great old um, debate that's in some ways being played out in these contemporary circumstances. Yeah. So let me ask you one important question. Uh, were you invited back to Utah after you told them that? I was not, <laughs> but I, I don't think, but I don't think, um, I don't know. I, I was actually uh, in touch after that with some people from the Mormon Church who uh, were in, uh, you know, in leadership in the Mormon Church who in, who in initiated conversations with me. Um, so I thought I thought it was actually a very positive, um, very positive, uh, you know, engagement. Good, good. Um, well, I'm glad it did go yeah. well. But there's the old saying: yeah. no one ever invites a prophet to lunch twice. <laughs> No, they don't. you yeah. get one shot. But no, that's a good thing. And this book was really helpful, especially, like I said, for someone with Anabaptist leanings to see this is why the Anabaptist tradition has a lot to offer. So we look forward to, to uh, first of all, people go buy this book, read it. Second of all, um, the next book about getting Yankees and Red Sox fans to get along. I'll look yes. forward to reading that one, too. Thank you for that. I'll be sure to cut you in on my, on my royalties yes, when that comes out. Please do. I, we, ha- we have yeah. it recorded. It's done. All right. Thank you, sir. <laughs> 
All right. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.